0: Good evening, mild and evening service. Um, Always a joy to be in front of you to share something of God's word. Here's a slide for you to kick us off. You'll recognize some of the logos, maybe all of them, uh, and a bit of text uh, around each logo. Uh, UNICEF. UNICEF's mission is to protect the rights and well-being of every child, working towards a world where where all children have access to healthcare, nutrition, education, and protection. IJM is, for those who don't know, International Justice Mission, uh, a charity that I think we we support, we've partnered with, at least in the past. And uh, they say they exist to protect the poor from violence by rescuing victims, bringing the criminals to justice, restoring survivors to safety and strength, and helping local law enforcement build a just and effective justice system. And um, to move to the commercial sphere, you'll recognize uh, Apple uh, logo, and they say that their mission is to bring innovative products and services to the world, enriching people's lives through technology, design, and user experience. Now, can anyone tell me what uh, these are called, what these bits of text are called? Mission statements, that's right. These are mission statements of some famous uh, uh, charities, or organizations and companies. Now, what is a mission statement? Well, it's a concise message uh, that outlines the purpose, the values, the goals of an organization. It establishes their guiding purpose and direction. Why do they exist? Uh, and, I mean, who are they and what are they for? What, what, why do they exist? Well, this evening, um, I'll try to show you that Jesus also has a mission statement. Uh, Jesus' own mission statement, what he is, I mean, who he is, and what he's about, uh, what he's come to do. And I'll try to show you that actually Jesus' mission statement is also, in a very important sense, ours too. It's the template for our own mission and purpose. So let's just read the passage for tonight Uh, as Joel was saying we're back in Luke Uh, we are a week after Resurrection Sunday but now we're rewinding back to the start of Jesus's ministry at least according to the Gospel of Luke and we'll read from chapter 4 starting at verse 14 to 21 and I'll read the text for us Jesus returns to Galilee in the power of the Spirit and news about him spread through the whole countryside He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind and to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, "'Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing.'" Okay, let me set the scene for us. According to Luke, Jesus is returning to Galilee after the great showdown with uh, Satan in the wilderness, in the desert. And the amazing thing is that actually he doesn't return like a limping survivor, but he returns in the power of the Spirit. What could have been um, something that defeated him, something that destroyed and derailed his mission has only strengthened him because somehow in that desert, he has drawn on the Spirit and he has drawn on the presence and the power of the Spirit. And we'll come back to this. Hold this thought in your, in your mind. So here he is coming in the power of the Spirit in Galilee and he's teaching and preaching um, and his platform is increasing, his prestige is, is growing. People begin to, to hear about this new rabbi News about him, says the text, spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. And now Jesus comes back to this obscure little town called Nazareth. And as a good Hebrew, you know, we, we tend to forget that Jesus was, was a Jew. He was a Hebrew, and he went to a Torah school, and he became a rabbi, an expert in the teachings, and uh, he goes to the synagogue, which is a religious kind of uh, gathering uh, distinct from the temple, where you didn't have to be a priest to, to teach and to take part in the service. And now it's his turn to participate and to lead the service in the synagogue, or at least a part of it. So here he is, surrounded by the whole village. Um, his extended family's there, his neighbors, the, the friends he grew up with, they're all there, kind of ready to hear what, what this new kind of budding rabbi has to say, what their neighbor has to say. And uh, he, he now plays a part in the service. Now, Synagogue services, we're not entirely sure exactly how they function, but what we do know is that they usually had two readings as part of a synagogue service. One was a reading from the Torah, uh, the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses. And then they also had another reading from the so-called Haftarah, which are the prophets. Um, And Jesus is now kind of coming in, and he's going to do a reading and a teaching from the prophets, and the prophet for that day was the prophet Isaiah. So he um, he unscrolls, he unrolls the scroll. They didn't have books like we have uh, today, let alone iPads. Um, and he 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 looks intently for a particular passage, and he chooses Isaiah sixty-one, and he reads what we have just read. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he stops there. Now, there are two things to to note here. Uh, Actually, this is not an exact quotation from Isaiah 61. There's also a verse in there from Isaiah 58. And this wouldn't have been unusual at the time because... um, readers would have that liberty to kind of go back and forth a little bit, not all the way to the beginning, and to choose verses and connect them to highlight a particular theme. So Jesus is doing that and bringing a verse from Isaiah 58, and you'll see it on the screen, where it says, Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke and to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? So he brings that verse in. Second, it's quite significant where he ends. So he stops with the news about the year of the Lord's favor, which is the announcement about the Jubilee, which you've heard about if you were here last Sunday. So he stops there. Uh, But the passage in Isaiah actually continues uh, and talks about a certain day of vengeance or retribution of our God. But Jesus doesn't mention that. He, he stops with the year of the Lord's favor, which which is significant, which is significant, and we'll see why. So he reads this passage standing, uh, like I'm doing today, um, but then everyone's looking intently at him, right? Everyone's, everyone's eyes are fastened on him, the text says, and then he sits down. That was the custom of the day. He sits in uh, the so-called... Uh, chair of Moses, which would have been the place where, where uh, people would have given authoritative teaching on the Torah and on the prophet. So he sits down and everyone's expecting him to now go on and expound Isaiah 61. And he began by saying, Luke says, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing, which was a shocking thing to say for the people in his time. What is Jesus doing here? What is Jesus doing in this synagogue at the start of his ministry, according to Luke, where he's laying out his mission statement, who he is and what he's been sent to do. He is outlining his concise message about his life's purpose and direction. This, is, this encapsulates who Jesus is and what he's come to do. So let's just spend spend a bit of time thinking through uh, this passage and understand um, how it relates to to us. Who is he? The claim is just astonishing. This first century uh, young Jew, this new rabbi from a fairly obscure town, is the one that has been chosen, the one that has been set apart, sent by God to be the ultimate agent of God's redemptive purposes in the world, to usher in a new age of freedom, of salvation, to come as the promised king. We've sung about the king. Unlike other kings who would have started their reign and would have brought in captives after conquering other peoples, Jesus, the king, announces that he's here to set free the captives. Kings of the world would have come in and would have, exact, would have um, taken money from people, would have imposed really punishing taxes to, to gather wealth. Jesus says, I'm here as good news to the poor, a king like no other. This is, this is the astonishing claim that God, God's purposes for the world are now accomplished through this figure now let me just open a a bracket here um, about how to read this this passage because it's easy to to read this as a social and political manifesto to see Jesus as a social and political liberator and we have to be careful here actually because there are at least I think two two extremes, two traps that we can, we can fall into. One is to read this in purely physical, purely social, economic, political terms. The poor that Jesus mentions are only the material poor. In Marxist terms, the proletariat. Um, the prisoners are political prisoners or debt slaves, the economically exploited. Blindness is purely physical or psychological false consciousness, again, Marx. But this would be misguided, I think, to read this in purely physical, material, social terms. But the other extreme, the other way of of reading this, I think is equally misguided, to, to completely spiritualize and actually say this is all about kind of spiritual matters and spiritual relationships, and to lose, therefore, sight of the social and economic outworkings of the gospel. We need to keep these two together in our mission, just as Jesus kept them together. Um, so what has Jesus come to do? Well, to proclaim, to announce good news to the poor. Now, who are the poor? Who is, who, who is poor? Who is the poor? Who are the poor? I'm sorry. The answer, I think, is actually given in... Um, in the Sermon on the Mount, a bit later on, I think there's a really powerful clue. Luke 6, 23, obviously the Sermon on the Mount, you can find it in Matthew as well, but it's there in in Luke 6, where as part of his sermon, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, or as I think Jonathan Pennington, an author says, flourishing are the poor in spirit. In Luke six twenty three, it qualifies it in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is there. So who are the poor, the poor in spirit? Well, imagine the scene in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is on this hill, and he's surrounded by disciples. He's looking around. And what he's, do- what he's not doing is saying, okay, there is a, a distinct, permanent category, a group of people. These are the poor. He's looking around at his disciples who are, what are they doing? They're waiting to hear, they're listening and responding to to Jesus, to, to, to him. And he is actually saying, all of you who listen to me, who sit at my feet, and who implicitly recognize your need, you are all, in a sense, the poor. The poor are therefore not a distinct group but anyone and everyone who admits their neediness, their dependence. Anyone and everyone who listens and responds to Jesus. And in speaking about his mission, Jesus takes up this language uh, of, of Isaiah and talks about the poor because it's usually, not always, but it's usually the poor, the ones who are materially deprived that do sense their need and are first to respond to the invitation of the gospel material deprivation not always but often makes people more sensitive spiritually a beggar knows he or she needs others in a very direct palpable way whereas someone having a personal driver who just drops them off or have has things delivered to them at their doorstep through couriers you know is not, is not faced with their dependence in the same way as someone who is really destitute. And I think this is the key to understanding the really stern uh, words addressed to the rich in Jesus' teaching. The poor are more ready to acknowledge their need of salvation than the rich. It's not that they are morally superior, the poor, it's just that they understand that they're not self-sufficient, that they're dependent. But there's also something more important here when we talk about the poor and spiritual poverty. There's an analogy or a comparison made here between material poverty and spiritual poverty. Material poverty is, results from the complex interplay between unjust systems, social, economic, political, Difficult circumstances and poor choices. There's a complex interplay between those three. And in the same way, spiritual pro- poverty is the product of sin and individual sin. And the, way, the, the reason I introduced that kind of distinction, sin with the capital S and individual S, is that actually in the Bible, and especially in, in Paul's Uh, letters in 1 Corinthians and in Romans, sin refers not simply to individual moral uh, wrongdoing, things that you individually did wrong, but it also refers to this cosmic, corrupting, powerful force that is bent on destroying, corrupting, imprisoning, and ultimately one's death for God's creation the very undoing of God's purposes. And this force that is active in the universe, which was defeated at the cross, crucially, but this agency wants to co-opt, wants to hijack your life and your decisions and manifest through our individual sins and wrongdoing. So sin is both individual and this cosmic force and manifest at both levels. And I think you can really see this if you think about sin um, in terms of the gambling industry, or the lottery, and individual kind of playing the lottery. It's both an industry and an individual act which leads to addiction and enslavement, ultimately. On the individual level, you know, it's, it promises a life-changing prize. You hit the jackpot, your, your destiny's completely changed. And it it seems to demand very little, right? uh, A scratch card is not going to break the bank. Uh, A token for the slot machine isn't a fortune. But slowly, slowly, it takes a hold of you, um, and you end up spending more than you ever planned, and sometimes you even spend the money you didn't have. In much the same way, sin begins to be quite attractive, But ultimately, it impoverishes you. It leaves you much poorer than when you started. It diminishes you as a person. It stifles your freedom. The good news is that Jesus has come to proclaim good news to the needy. These are not empty words. They're backed up by his life and ultimately by by his death on the cross. So... There's value going through each of these uh, lines of Isaiah 61, but ultimately, they all point to our natural condition when we are estranged, separated from God, who is our loving creator. When instead of embracing our dependence on Him and one another, we seek to shore up our autonomy, we seek to declare our self-sufficiency, we attach to things that promise to promise a lot, but ultimately disappoint. And this is really the cycle of of sin that leads to lack of freedom and ultimately death. So Jesus has come to proclaim freedom or release for the prisoners, for the ones who get caught in this cycle. And this, this reference to release for the prison is probably a reference to exile. The, people, the, the, the Jews were taken uh, captives by the Babylonians. But it also, refer, it also refers to, uh, to debt slaves, people who are who were, were forced to get into uh, debt slavery, basically, because their crops have failed, their animals have died, uh, and they just can't pay back their debts. And Jesus is coming to release, to provide release, Uh, for the prisoners. This theme of release is actually core to Jesus' mission. This is Jesus' core business, to release his creation from all forms of captivity, from everything that entraps us, that enslaves us. Sin, shame, guilt, and his whole life is marked by by a ministry of releasing. You see this in the healing he performs. You see, the, you see it in the, in the way he delivers people from demonic oppression. Uh, and in doing that, he also restores them and, restores them and in society, he restores their social standing and their agency. In fact, one of the key metaphors for salvation is redemption. We, we use it often, but literally it means to buy back from slavery, to release someone from a form of slavery so sin according to the biblical picture is anything and everything that impoverishes you ultimately it traps and enslaves but it also finally it distorts your vision it also distorts your value system it blinds us to what is real and to what is truly valuable and worthwhile in the sermon on the mount in matthew 6 Jesus says, and these are, you know, quite mysterious kind of words here. He says, the eye is the lamp of the body. Or your, your outlook, your perception of what is real is fundamental to who you are as a person. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If the light within you is darkness, strange image, how great is that Darkness. So, this is why Jesus goes on to say that he's come to bring recovery of sight to the blind. Again, the spiritual and the physical go together. Jesus literally restores the sight of blind people that he meets. Think of blind Martimaeus. Uh, And he also spiritually restores our vision to see reality in all of its God given colors. This is profound. And finally, to kind of wrap things up, he says, he has come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. <clears throat> I said this as a reference to uh, the Jubilee. Now, the Jubilee uh, was mentioned last week. You'll, you'll see kind of the deep, the, all the legislation, all the, 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 the rules that God gives his people in Leviticus 25. And this idea of the Jubilee is absolutely central to the good news of, of Jesus, to the gospel. In summary, jubilee meant that all debts were canceled in Israel, debt prisoners were freed, and land would be restored to its original owners. So by reading this passage at the beginning of his ministry, Jesus is saying that he is the embodiment, he is the face of the jubilee. He has come to launch the great reset in history in the way that the jubilee provisions were supposed to do for the people of Israel, to restore people, to restore relationships, to restore justice. But crucially, not through brutal force, not through violent revolution, but through costly self-sacrifice and self-giving love. And about all of this, Jesus sits down and says, this is all happening in your hearing. It's a present continuous. And it's still happening today. It's still happening today. Actually, Luke drives this point home because he, he shows in Jesus' ministry how this happens. And then he continues in Luke to, to show the same, the same pattern, the same sorts of things that Jesus... Uh, mentioned in reading this scroll so Luke is suggesting that this is the template for the mission of Jesus's followers that's you and I because you see united with Christ we have the same spirit of Christ we are invited to have the same spirit of the Lord upon us We are the body of Christ, we are Christ's representatives in the world, therefore this is also our mission statement. We are also called to speak about the good news of Jesus, that there is freedom available, that there is freedom from sin, from all forms of captivity and oppression and, and addiction. We are to serve those in need. And through our words and through our actions and through our very lives individually and together as, as, as the church, we are to signpost the kingdom. We are to, to you know, create pictures of what the kingdom looks like. Now, let me go briefly back to this idea that we're called to bring good news to the poor. There will be some uh, in this room this evening who God has called you to take up this work of working for the poor, the materially poor, um, in your day-to-day. You work for justice and poverty alleviation with dedicated charities and organizations like Christians Against Poverty maybe, like International Justice Mission, like Tear Fund, like Growth, uh, which is a night shelter and kind of housing advocacy uh, charity that we support and clearly that's so important you're doing the lord's work you're you're at the heart of what jesus is all about but without in any way trying to diminish that what i'm trying to suggest here is actually this work of being good news to the poor is something that's that's core for all of us we're all called to the say to, to the same, the, to the same job but you might be thinking how does this work I'm, I'm not i don't work for a charity i don't work in, in kind of social justice broadly understood i'm i'm an artist i work in finance i'm a civil servant you know whatever you do well you know let's remind ourselves what what's our identity we are followers of jesus but we are also carriers of jesus carriers of the spirit of of jesus we're not just distinct from christ following from a distance In a a very important and mysterious sense, we are carrying Christ with us. So wherever we go, we, we carry something of what Jesus can do. And actually, we constantly meet the poor. We constantly meet people who are fundamentally dependent, though they might be in denial in the moment. We constantly meet people who have deep, unmet needs, who have various addictions, various suppressions, various burdens that they, they carry, very dis- destructive patterns of, of thinking and of desiring. Because self-sufficiency is ultimately a myth. Individualism is a recipe for, for disaster. So the poor are all around us. We are actually the poor when we don't live out of the freedom that Jesus has secured for us. And I think our calling, wherever we are, in whatever sector we are, is to walk faithfully, patiently with with these people, with our neighbors, with our friends, and be there when they eventually will come face to face with their own poverty. When their understanding of freedom, that turns out to be a form of bondage that diminishes them, is revealed, when their way of making sense of things, when their scripts for making sense of the world break down, that's where you and I are called to be near those people and be carriers of good news. And we'll be there carrying Christ who can forgive, who can release, who can restore. And as we do this, we are again living out the promises of Jubilee. Paul makes this very point in 2 Corinthians 6.2. He says, as God's co-workers, that's that's what we are. We're God's co-workers in the world. We urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For God says, in the time of my favor, I heard you. And in the day of salvation, I have helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the jubilee. Now is the day of salvation. How do we do this? How do we... um, embody and live out this, this mission of Jesus, of speaking about the good news, of serving the need, of signposting the kingdom. I would suggest it's actually through abiding. This is the, fun, the, the, the key recipe, if we can call it that. Our actions must flow out of our abiding in Jesus. Our service of others must flow from our surrender to Jesus if we if we sever this link and if we try to do things in our own powers we will either burn out run out of steam and we will be cynical and we will ultimately despair because the problems in the world are so profound anyone who's work, worked in kind of poverty alleviation will understand just how complex these things are any big Crisis out there is so so profound, and it's easy to to lose steam and to become cynical. That's why we need to abide in Jesus. He is the strength. He is the energy for our efforts. Um, If we don't do that, we either become cynical or we become cocky. We think we are the saviors. We are the messiahs who bring liberation, and we are not that. And it's just a matter of time when, before that that becomes clear. So we must keep together worship of Jesus, abiding in him with love of neighbor. And it's really why we emphasize prayer uh, so much in our church. Because prayer is so much more than just saying words to a God who's out there. It's actually our way of abiding in him, of drawing on him, just as Jesus drew on God, drew on the spirit, and he resisted the, the enemy in the wilderness. Jesus says in, 15, uh, in John 15, 4, abide or remain in me and I in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. It's an active thing. There's one final thing that I wanna mention. Um, Going back to the passage, you notice actually uh, the verbs: to proclaim good news to the poor, proclaim freedom for the prisoners, proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And I think there are some of you in this room uh, tonight who, who maybe you know, you've you felt for a long time that you want to share um, your faith, you want to share the good news, but you hold back. Because you often find yourself playing in your mind uh, scenarios uh, where you, you say something and it just comes out super cringe or you're asked a really difficult question and you just don't know what to say and, and you have, you, 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 you're just playing these scenarios in your head and it's, it's trapping you basically, it's stopping you from, from sharing. Um, well, if that's, what, that's you tonight, I, I really believe that God wants to deliver us from this spirit of fear and to pour courage in our hearts uh, for witness. And I, I, I use the plural because this this is me as well. Um, I'm, I'm in the same situation often. And I really feel strongly that he is giving us, God is giving us a new language, a new language, a new Language, and also fresh authority in using this language to speak about him and to share a faith. And actually, this language is old, <laughs> if, you, if, if, uh, if I can put it that way. It's actually the language of testimony. The language of testimony, uh, which is a self-involving narrative about what you have seen and what you have experienced. And I really believe that testimony, if we understand it correctly, is the kind of uh, form of evangelism, of sharing your faith, that is, God is particularly empowering for our time, for our age of authenticity, for the noisiness of our culture, where, where we have just a cacophony of worldviews and opinions, where people's skepticism is high. Testimony, I really believe, can cut through that in a way that argument. Um, alone will struggle. But the upshot of this is that, you know, if we are to use this language, you have to have what to testify. You have to have experiences with God to talk about, to share. Your experience of captivity, your blurred vision, your losing hope and purpose and God coming through and meeting you and releasing you, the good news, what does it mean for you and your daily experiences? We need to become rich towards God. That also means rich in these experiences. So my encouragement is for us to pursue God, pursue experiences that, w- that we can store and can be the language for our testimony when we're sharing with our friends. A key verse that really sums this up is actually the episode with the Samaritan woman in John 4, Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman and he, he knows everything about her. And it says in John 4, 39, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. He told me everything I ever did, but the implication is, but didn't reject me. Didn't reject me. That was her testimony, and it was powerful because it was empowered by the Spirit. I think this is the pattern for us. And as we abide in Jesus, as we walk in step with the Spirit, we will know when and how to speak. In Mark 13, 11, and the band can come up, it says, whenever you are arrested or brought to trial, that doesn't mean just a formal trial, although there are Christians around the world who are actively persecuted in exactly this way, but just a difficult situation where you're put on the spot, where you have to account for your faith. It says, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given you at the time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. God is empowering us to use the language of testimony for our time as part of our witness, uh, as part of our uh, going and continuing on the mission of Jesus, of speaking about the kingdom and the good news of the kingdom serving those in need and of signposting with everything that we are the kingdom the method quote-unquote is abiding the formula is the presence of God let me wrap this up if this evening you actually heard those words from Isaiah 61 and they describe you they describe you you feel like you are poor, like you're impoverished, or you feel like you're burdened, you're trapped you're stuck there is good news for you, there is good news if you feel depleted or burnt out God is here and he is whispering good news to you he is here to lift your burdens that's core business for God that's why he's come to lift you to free you from everything that entangles and robs you of the joy of living in the way he has created you. So if you resonate with that, uh, I'd invite you to, to come for prayer. There's a bunch of us here ready to, to pray with you, if that's helpful. This is, this is the day of salvation. This is the day of your release. Believe in your heart. But if this evening you sense that Jesus' mission statement is also part of your calling, and you also want to follow in the ways of Jesus and carry the presence and the power of Christ, and particularly in the area of evangelism and sharing your faith with words, I also invite you to come up for prayer and receive the empowerment of the Spirit and be commissioned for that. So let's worship this King who has come as the embodiment of good news for all of us.